Welcome, my friends, my waterproof record heads, my waterproof heads, something. I'm sure there's a fun name we could come up with for listeners of the show. Uh, send me your ideas. Might be a fun thing to do. Hi. Hello. How are you? How's your day? How's your night? How's your week going? I hope it's great. I'm here to take you away from whatever's going on and just focus on an album, on some music, on some memories, and to have a great time. One thing I never do, though, on Waterproof Records is I always kind of get to a lot of the things about what I've got going on at the end of the episode, and I realize that maybe there's people that didn't get a chance to finish the episode or don't hear some of those things that happen at the end. So I do want to remind everybody that please help me continue making this show by supporting, commenting, sharing it, letting people know uh, about Waterproof Records that this is a, a fun show to reminisce about albums and bands. I do have guests. I have more guests on the way that I'm very excited about. But today is a classic. It's just me and you, and we're going to talk about the album that you clicked on. Um, this one I'm really excited about because it took me a while to think about which one I wanted to do, but I chose this one for a reason. Um, but before I get into that, as you can see, if you watch the show, I'm wearing one of my t-shirts and you might be thinking to yourself, you have t-shirts? Yes, I do have t-shirts. The one I'm wearing right now, if you're only listening and the majority of the people who listen to the podcast don't see these video clips, I'm wearing my shirt that I made based off of the Mazzy Star TikTok video that I did a while ago for Fade Into You. It says on it, it says, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to listen about it. And I know that's kind of a nonsensical phrase, but it, it came about while making that video. And I think that was a good descriptor for when things are going on or you've got things in your head and, you know, you don't really want to have a conversation. You just want to kind of tune out the world and just let the music do the talking. I thought it was a good idea for a shirt. So I made it into a shirt. So I do have a store and you might be, might be wondering, how do I find your store? You just go online, you can go check all my links, I have link trees, and it's a store called Bonfire. Bonfire basically makes these um, shirts and sends them out to you. And I have a bunch of stuff in there. I have the one based on the Rage Against the Machine shirt that says, I'm not, I'm, I'm angry, but I'm learning, and it has my silly little face on it. Then I have this one based off Mazzy Star, and then I have a Waterproof Records t-shirt that just has the logo. I have hats and stuff like that. Um, and then the one, the latest one that I'm so proud of is I made this design that says music is everywhere and it's got this, you know, tree line, um, but it looks like a sound wave. And somebody did point out to me later that Kate Bush did something similar on an album, which I actually wasn't familiar with when I made that shirt. It's just a vision I had for a long time of something that I wanted to create and it says music is everywhere. So um, if you'd like to own one of these things, please, that, that will help support the show and help me continue to making more content, investing in the studio space um, and really expanding the reach and uh, maybe one day take this show to your town on tour. That would be cool, right? But I, I will uh, get to the episode because I know you want to talk about music and uh, we're going to do the kickoff with the intro, and then we'll talk about DistroKid, and then we'll get going. Sound good? It is time to talk about Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. Let's go. Things are going to change. I feel it. If this going to be that kind of fun, Yes, Pretty Hate Machine. 
a classic. A life-changing album. A one that would set the stage for Trent Reznor for decades to come as a prolific creative artist who's gotten into so many more things. Um, but I wanted to start here for a reason. But before we dig in, I've got to give a shout out to the show's sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is an amazing service that allows you to put your music online. It's very simple. You upload your tracks and boom, they're everywhere. And they have so many cool things that they offer. They have the Spotify Canvas generator. They have ways that you can have video that, you know, when you open up the Spotify on your phone and stuff, you see a little video playing there. They have ways of helping you do that. They have um, the Distro Lock, which prevents people from stealing your music and uploading it somewhere else. They have all these things included when you use their service. And if you go to my profile links, my link tree, you can click on one and you get 30% off your first year. That's a large amount of savings. So I highly recommend you check out distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Uh, go check it out. That is my VIP link and you can get some uh, savings off of your first year of using DistroKid. I use them for my album from Out of the Deep End that uh, came out in 2007 and I'll be using them again this summer when I put out my new music, which is coming very soon. So more on that. But you came here to talk about Mr. Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails and Pretty Hate Machine. I love how, by the way, if you watch the show, I have um, these headphones that has this cable on the side right here, and I keep whipping it back like I'm Cher. I'm like, <laughs> if I could turn back time. Um, anyway, we're not talking about Cher. We're talking about uh, Trent Reznor, which is a very different subject mat- material from Cher. <laughs> so you may be wondering, since a lot of the content that I choose tends to gravitate towards this very specific time in the 90s, which again, I'm going to reiterate that I love music now. I love music from the early 2000s, from 2010 to 2020. I love all these decades, the 80s, the 70s, tons of genres, and over time, we'll get to all of those. I just happen to be pretty well-versed in this decade as it was a time that I was listening and consuming more music than I'd ever had in my life, and I became obsessed, and I'm just one of those people that got really into these albums. And as I got older, now the way I experience music, it doesn't get to be as intense. I'm sure you can relate. The intensity that we could have, one, pre-internet, and two, just when you don't have a lot of other things going on like jobs, family, children, responsibilities. When you're younger, you can you can really get hyper fixated on an artist or a band and you can really focus on making that the priority in your life and it just gets harder. So if I find a band and... 2017 that I love, my relationship with them will be about as far as you can go um, with a lot of other things going, listening to the album, learning a little bit about the artist. But in this time in my life, I could get in, dig in, learn as much as possible. And it was fun to sit around with friends and talk about, you know, the things that you learned or the rumors. Of course, there were gossip and, you know, did you know this? Did you know that? Um So anyway, I chose Pretty Hate Machine for a very specific reason. It is 1989. It was released in October 20th, 1989. So it's that little moment right before the 90s. And I did the same thing with this album that I chose to do on the Faith No More episode. So if you remember that or if you heard that episode, Angel Dust is probably more influential on my music tastes um, and was a bigger album for me. But I went to the real thing because it was such a good foundation. And I feel like Pretty Hate Machine is the foundation that I want to start with. 
And it was a big deal album for me. I don't think I heard it early, like, uh, you know, when it came out in 1989. I probably got my hands on a dubbed copy of the tape maybe in 90, uh, late 90. It would have circulated its way to me through my brother, through my cousin, through older kids that had passed it down. And Pretty Hate Machine was unlike anything I had heard at that time. Now, I didn't even own the album. Like I said, it was on this Memorex dubbed cassette tape. And I remember it very well. It was one of those very colorful ones, you know, pink and yellow and translucent. You could see through the tape, but it had all these colors to it. And it the, yet there it was. I don't even know if it said Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine, because like I've mentioned on previous episodes, we were very crafty in hiding uh, music from our parents because they did not approve. And I think in 1990, I was pretty young hearing this. This would be before... We would really get into the alternative grunge explosion that would happen after 1991 and after getting some of those albums that would change my life. But this is before all that. And so this is really kind of shaking up what I'm used to and what I'm hearing. Um, and I loved this album. I listened to it over and over again. And I have a very specific memory with that tape. Because while I owned Pretty Hate Machine in a, in a CD form later, and now I can stream the whole thing, I'm sure you can relate to this. The way you experienced a song for so long, I'll still hear songs um, from that era of my life and automatically think of another song that should play right after it because of a mixtape. You know what I mean? Like, I'll hear a song by, you know, um, The Promise Ring. And then immediately it'll it should go into the song by seam because that's how the mixtape went. And I, I, I hear it in my head that way. And those first relationships you have with cassette tapes, mixes, the way that you heard music for the first time, it stays in, in your mind. And this is another one of those tapes where when we got to something I can never have at the end of side one, I'm pretty sure it it cut off. Before he finished the song, I went back and listened to a Waterproof Records early on that I did with my brother, Joel. It's the episode we did on The Cure. And we talked about that exact same thing that happened on The Cure. Uh, we recorded the song A Forest and it, it was stopping on the tape before the song finished playing on this college radio station. So the way I always hear A Forest has that stop start while we're trying to grab the end before the tape ran out. And the same with this album. I still remember... That song, he's going, you make it all go away. And then he's like building and building and building. And then he's on this last thing. And then it just, it just stops. Tape ran out. It was jarring. And yet that added so much to the texture of feeling and pain and loneliness I was feeling while I listened to that song. Um, before I get too much into that feeling, I want to talk a little bit about why I think this album resonates and I learned more about why it connects with me personally, I think, more than I even realized. Um, if you think about, you know, nine, 1989, 1990, when I would have been discovering this, I'm I'm pretty young at the time. I think I'm 12. And this is that early, early adolescence a lot of those feelings are starting to come into your mind and into your body and you don't necessarily know what they are or how to express them. And 
I was learning a little bit about Trent Reznor's upbringing. You know, he was the child of teenage parents um, that divorced when he was six. He was born in Pennsylvania. And when they divorced, he went to go live with his maternal grandparents. And I think he had a really, you know, nice childhood. He talks a little bit about it wasn't a bad childhood. It was positive. And his grandparents have said he was always very talented, good kid, you know, played the started playing piano by age 12, really took to music, um, trained and taught and studied to play and, and had that classical um, understanding and instruction of the instrument and how to put together music. Um, so he had a good childhood, but one thing he talked about in some of these excerpts from interviews that I read was growing up in this small town USA and feeling pretty isolated. And as I read that deeper, he started talking about watching television, listening to the radio, seeing things through this box, you know, this box, this, this, the way that our televisions were back then, they weren't these sleek, high definition flat screen TVs. They were these, you know, big bulky boxes and you'd stare at them. And I was a child who watched TV constantly. I can hilariously point to all of these home movies when I was a kid where somebody would be walking through a family get together with a VHS camcorder and they would turn the corner and I was sitting in front of the TV and they would next video, turn the corner, sitting in front of the TV on a vacation with my family in Florida, turn the corner and Jacob's sitting in front of the TV. I watched so much television that it was a, it was a problem. It was like one of those things that my mom was, my mom and dad were worried about it. You know, TV rotting your brain or spending too much time sitting too close to the TV. I'm sure you can relate. I know you, a lot of you probably had a similar experience and I was just a notorious TV watcher. I got into trouble for watching MTV a lot. And so I had to do it in secret. And we didn't have like HBO and Cinemax and those pay channels. But it doesn't mean you wouldn't come across them as a, as a kid. You would spend the night at somebody's house and you would see it. Or somebody would get you like a VHS tape taped off of Cinemax and you get to watch it. I don't always mean like the dirty adult content. I just mean like... Horror movies, science fiction movies, you know, getting a chance to see Big Trouble in Little China or some other random science fiction, RoboCop or Terminator, getting your hands on those things. And this is where this ties to Trent Reznor. I promise it does. I promise. Stick with me. Watching those things on my television and then looking out my window and being in Tulsa, Oklahoma and being in a suburban town and going to church every Sunday and going to this school with the same kids and having these really artistic inclinations of like I had stories in my mind and music I wanted to write and feelings that ran so deep. Um, I, I, I had so many feelings um, and, and almost like voices in my head. And I don't mean that uh, as in like schizophrenic or making light of that situation, but I just have always felt an enormous amount of emotions, almost to the point of um, it's an empathy that's overwhelming sometimes. And I was looking around in my environment and none of the things that I would see in these movies and these TVs were available to me where I lived. It wasn't for me. It was, it was cool. It was out there. It was somewhere else. It was, whether it was a, 
like a graphic, violent horror movie that I thought was cool, scary, but cool, or a crazy science fiction movie or something a little risque or MTV. I just felt like, wow, the world out there, I was drawn in. I was scared, yet I wanted to see more. And Trent Reznor expressed a similar type thing of growing up in small town USA, not having a bad childhood, but feeling isolated, alone, like you wanted what was on the other side of that glass of that television. And when I read that that's the way he felt, I started going, that's why Pretty Hate Machine came along in a time in my life and I was like, yes, yes. Because the first song I ever heard off of Pretty Hate Machine was Head Like a Hole. I think I must have seen it on MTV. I don't even know if it was Headbangers Ball or 120 Minutes, but I, I heard and saw that video. Trent Reznor with his long, black, clumpy hair, screaming into a microphone, these you know, really poorly made scans of like computerized heads or mannequin heads spinning around, head like a hole. Here are these lyrics that are going right over my head. Head like a hole, black as your soul. I'd rather die than give you control. Bow down before the one you serve. Here I was going to church and, and you know youth group and things like that. I wasn't even letting those lyrics really resonate. I was just shouting and singing along as a kid and not, not letting it sink in. Um, this album was like beats and sounds that I hadn't quite experienced before. And he really experimented with the panning and the, the way that things would interact with your ears. You know, um, I'm sure he wasn't the first person to pioneer this, but this is a very Nine Inch Nails thing. This is a very Trent Reznor thing. The way that the, the sound is kind of, you know, the drum is here and it's passing and panning through. It's very signature him. He's always got good music for testing out speakers or headphones. Um, oh, I think my stomach just growled. Anyway, by the way, if you're watching this episode, you may notice that I have a mustache and that may have completely thrown you for a loop, but I did it because I just got back from Coachella and while I was there, I made a funny video about everybody having a mustache and then I was like, well, I'm going to make a mustache too. So I, I did it. So that's why I have the mustache now. Might keep it for a while. We'll see. Um, it's fun. But this album hear these beats and sounds and things that are coming along and I'm hearing for the first time and it was introducing me to this this industrial world but in a like almost like a safer way I've talked about on the show before how my brother and I would listen to this college radio station and on the college radio station uh, Roger State College Edge of Insanity in Tulsa they would have industrial hours. And I remember being really like scared or intimidated or overwhelmed by the industrial world. Sure, I knew ministry, skinny puppy, um, you know, KMFDM, Front 242. These, these were all part of that world. And they were very aggressive and scary and intimidating in this, in this interesting way. You know, it was a, it was a dangerous type of alternative that I was experiencing. You know, it seemed a little chaotic and I was interested. But a lot of times the industrial up until that point didn't have the melodies, it didn't have the the hooks in the same way. And I don't think that's the point of the genre. I'm not I'm not saying that they need it. I'm just saying that that's why it didn't feel as accessible to me at the time. But here came this album that was like introducing me to industrial sounds but he was including so much more of these 
the song structure, you know, songs that were not driving home this thing over and over and over again and just grinding into your skull. This was like dynamic and um, it really came from a vulnerable place. I, I remember reading that Trent Reznor was trying to completely abandon his his classical knowledge of music and like his his theory and understanding about music and how it works and abandoning all of that and just writing from the heart. He had been, I you know, I should talk a little bit about that. He had grown up playing music and got into a lot of bands and cover bands and he was playing keys and experimenting around and and started touring during that time when he was in high school. And uh, I think after he graduates, he moves to Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and he starts, you know, playing in all these different bands and trying to find his sound. And I think he's writing a lot of the songs at the time. I don't know when this happened exactly, but I know he became a roadie for ministry for a while because there's a lot of funny stories about his time with ministry and Al Jurgensen. Um, Al Jurgensen seems like a from ministry seems like a pretty wild unhinged dude and no surprise. I mean, a lot of fun, but uh, I'll give you an example. Um, there is a, uh, Oh, what's the name of the cover? It's get down. So nine inch nails, Trent records a cover of a queen song and he has Al Jurgensen come in to help him with the track. And during this, this, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is, it's a get down, make love by queen. So they're doing a cover of Get Down, Make Love by Queen and Al Jurgensen from Ministry comes in and Trent had a history with him. And so I know that when he was touring with them before, being on the road with them before, there had been antics like they mentioned throwing firecrackers into Trent's bunk on the bus and him, you know, yeah, they threw out like a M60 or whatever it was in it. He, he flew out of his bunk. So a lot of antagonizing kind of like. Um, guys being guys, boys, boys being boys and being a little rough and hazing each other like that. Um, so he's, so Al Jurgensen is coming in to record this cover of, uh, get down, make love by the queen. And he makes a bet. He's like, we stay up all night and, and we power through and get this track done. And you know, that's the bet. And Al apparently didn't want to lose the bet. So he ends up drugging Trent. He puts Rohypnol in his drink. Trent passes out. So he's the first one out. So Al shaves his head and then he shaves off one eyebrow and he's about to shave off the second. And then that's when Trent Reznor woke up just like screaming, seeing he's being shaved. And, um, and you know, these guys are laughing and I, I know he was really pissed off about it, but this is the kind of crazy wild behavior to ex- be expected from Al Jurgensen. So anyway, that's an interesting story, but let me get back to the journey that led him to nine inch nails and a little bit of the groundwork, how he came up with this album. So he's playing in these cover bands and, um, I'm forgetting the names of some of them, but I know while he was playing, he was writing these songs and starting to bring these songs together and playing with, you know, touring along with bands like skinny puppy and really trying to find the arrangements. And I think at first when he was playing these songs live before they were recorded as demos, they weren't quite working live. He kind of had to figure out how to do the arrangement to make him work well, find his space. But then he gets a job working, um, for a, a, a recording studio in Cleveland, Ohio. I want to say it's right track studios. Forgive me if I'm getting that wrong, but gets a job there. He's basically like a like a janitor handyman 
assistant sound engineer. And the guy who runs the studio, he basically makes a deal with this guy like, hey, can I record these demos in the studio for free as long as I do it during off hours? And this is like a pretty cool story because this is somebody who, you know, it's 2 a.m. Everybody's done. So he gets to work and he starts recording these these demos at the odd hours, the middle of the night in the in the free time, getting it done. And this is how he starts putting together the demos that would become Pretty Hate Machine. These are the songs that he's working on. And he's playing every single instrument on the album except for the drums, which he's lifting from his own record collection. He's sampling, you know, drum beats from other people's songs. And I those ended up in the final cut of Pretty Hate Machine. I think in some of the songs like Ring Finger, some of those uh, drum loops and, and samples are from Jane's Addiction. I think it's Had a Dad or there's some you know, Prince is in there. And then um, there's, I think it might be in down in it. There's six different bands, six different like actual drum sounds that are pulled directly in there and they're just hidden well. So there's no need for necessarily liner credits. He was able to do it without having to pay a ton of royalties. It's a very clever way of putting together an album. So he assembles it together and with this demo, he, he shops it out there. And he signs a record contract with TVT Records, which up until this point had only ever done like TV commercials or kind of novelty albums. So off of the demos that he have, he has at the time, they're very synthy. They're much more pop. And I don't know if you've seen this clip, but this video went all over the place for a while there. And it's of this band. I think they're called Slam Bamboo. And it's like a kind of pop 80s synth, really cheesy, dorky music. And there's this guy up there singing, he, you know, he's got the 80s hair and that it's on public access TV. And they're like, ladies and gentlemen, slam bamboo. And he starts singing this song and then they pan over and you see Trent Reznor just just plonk it away there on the, the keyboard. And you can see he's like putting on a face for the cameras. But obviously this is not what he wants to do. But the demos he's making at the time are much more poppy, much more accessible, much more, uh, you know, not as industrial, not as dark and heavy. But he gets the deal with TVT, and then this is where he really gets to work and starts putting together the album and really layering it and adding in the, the distorted guitars and that sound, that grinding, dark edge to the album. And when he's done with it, the guy who runs TVT Studios is like, you ruined a perfectly good album. Like, this is bad. This is terrible. Boy, was he wrong, because it went out and... It did great. It was mostly spread by word of mouth, um, but it, I believe it is one of the first independent records to ever achieve platinum status, and it's gone much more since then, but it really, really did uh, remarkably well, and it's just it's such a cool story to, to hear that somebody working in a, in a recording studio and doing this in their free time, this is what led them there, but this is what this is where he finds that signature Nine Inch Nails sound. And lyrically, I, I talked about Head Like a Hole earlier. Lyrically, there is a lot of kind of vulnerability and being raw and open on this album because he's said he didn't think anyone was going to hear it. There was a sense of, well, it doesn't matter anyway. I'm going to say what I'm dealing with. I'm going to share my personal, like, what I feel, what I think about this is going on the world or what I feel about God and what I feel about the political party or whatever. It wasn't a message. It was just what his personal experience was. And you want to know what that's 
That's what does it, right? Because it's something about when people just no longer try to pretend to be anything other than themselves. You can't help but look. You can't help but listen, I believe. I mean, it, it, it's not always the case because, I mean, I think that there's probably tons of artists out there putting everything about themselves out there. And it's hard. It's hard to be seen in this world. But when you are seen for being honest and open and vulnerable, it usually stands the test of time when you get the chance to be seen. I think it's important to say that because, look, here I am in my 40s and I'm just now being seen by you guys. And I've been vulnerable and raw and emotional my entire life with everything I've ever done. And, and yet it took me this long to just to to get an audience now to listen to me, which I feel grateful for. But the album itself, 1989, the cover of the album Pretty Hate Machine. That image, by the way, is the image of a turbine. And it was a turbine that was turned a certain way and kind of elongated and stretched out and made to look like a rib cage. And they, when they wanted to release, I think it was the 20th anniversary edition of it, they tried to track down the original artwork and it was lost. The original artwork from the artist, and forgive me, I forget forget his name, the original artist, but Trent has worked with Rob Sheridan, artist, you know, designer, creator forever, and so he wanted Rob to redo the cover of Pretty Hate Machine, but to take out those kind of fluorescent neon pink, very 80s touches, make it a little bit more appropriate to the, the style of the album and what was trying to be conveyed, just fix that, and so they they chased down the original artist and he's like, I'm sorry, I gave all the artwork to this management that management gave it to this. And just, it got lost, got, you know, so there, it doesn't exist anymore. So Rob Sheridan for that re-release of pretty hate machine, he basically did what an illustrator animator would do. And he just like took a scan and traced over it the best he could to kind of redo what you see on the cover to make it have that darker, um, you know, cover. If you've seen the new version, it has much more of like a Geiger feel to it with the the color palette, which is much more Nine Inch Nails. Um, that was an interesting thing about that. But I, I getting into the the track, I, I, I the track listing. I spent a couple days re-listening to Pretty Hate Machine, and I hadn't in many years. Not that a song or two didn't show up in a playlist, but start to finish, and. I was surprised at how much it really took me back and had a huge, you know, resonating moment on my, my, my memories and my mind. And I touched on it a moment ago about something I can never have. And that's the one, that's the song that I remember sitting there, leaning my head, looking out the car window with my headphones on and listening to that very simple piano line with him singing over it and talk about a lyric that I don't know if I knew why it meant so much, but I just want something I can never have. I don't think I really understood the depth of that. Like I do now, but being a kid leaning against the car window, going to school and looking at my life out there, it goes back to what I talked about with trans childhood and my childhood and watching TV and absorbing media and wanting it, yearning for something 
bigger, something greater, to be a part, to create, to be to be able to make art, make music, make sounds, make make the things that you're seeing on TV. And I remember sitting there, oh, this is really stirring up the feelings a little bit. But I remember sitting there and, you know, faded fucking reminder of who I used to be. Come on, tell me you make it all go away. I would listen to that over and over again. That was the song that really um, I was a little obsessed with when I listened to Pretty Hate Machine. And I can I can see why now, especially when I revisited it as an adult. I may have not understood the depth of what those words meant at that age, but something was clicking. And even the fact that he was saying fuck right there, that drew me in. It was just like those movies that I was talking to you about, that being scared but wanting more, yearning for it. There is this, um, I you know, I the name of the group, there was this video online that I found I want to say like 15 years ago. It's been a while. It was this online video collaborative called Smash TV. And at the time, they had this video that was on Vimeo. I don't know if you've ever used Vimeo, but it was kind of more like the filmmaker's platform outside of um, outside of YouTube. And there was this video that they made called Skinamax. And it wasn't just the... Uh, I know that always has the adult connotations of, you know... Uh, Cinemax TV having the nudity and the the risque content, which we all remember that. I'll remember, you know, trying to watch Cinemax through a scrambled TV. <laughs> but um, they made this compilation, and I think it was like an hour long. And it was beats and and kind of these, you know, different styles of beats and techno underneath all these supercuts of those films that I talked about earlier. Everything from Saturday morning cartoons to action movies, um, to horror films. We're talking like Cronenberg, you know, all the stuff, just all the really bizarre, wild things that you would see if you were watching late night TV, MTV, animation, things that were disturbing, cool, weird, off. And when I found that video, I used to watch it a lot. I used to sit down and just get lost in this video. And I think I think it's gone off of um, off of Vimeo, but I, I have since found it on HBO because I went searching for. I mean, not on HBO on YouTube. I found it again on YouTube, and I was like, I need to sit down and watch this again. Um, I haven't in a while, but I used to just watch it on repeat because it really gave me that feeling of like the getting kind of in this mesmerized, lost feeling of music and energy. And the beats, I feel like, gosh, I feel like I'm sounding like such a crazy weirdo. This has really got me in my feels again, you guys. Um, just thinking about um, something I can never have and the, the, the media that I was consuming as a kid that was all so taboo. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to go find those kind of slasher slash drive-in schlocky films. I love watching those because it just reminds me of a, a time where I wasn't allowed or it was off limits and now I can watch it freely. And whenever I see it, I'm like, huh, I'm right back. I'm right back there, back in my living room on the floor watching a television. 
this album really stirred up a lot of memories um, for me. I was I was surprised. I don't know if I could necessarily go track by track and be like this track, this track, like what the stories are. But, you know, Head Like a Hole, like I said, was which was the big hit, um, big single off that album. And then Terrible Lie, you know, those keys coming in there. And uh, Down In It, that's the one that he was criticized for when Down In It came out off the album. He was criticized by journalists and music critics for saying he ripped off Skinny Puppy's Dig It. And he's later said, like, yeah, I absolutely unintentionally was just trying to get more and more styles and feelings out in music. And I've I've listened to Dig It, and I think there's there's a lot of similarities, but it, it's its own thing still. Um, I think if maybe if you were a diehard Skinny Puppy fan, you might be like, hey, but I still think that we borrow from our heroes, we remix, we restylize, and being a new artist, it's kind of inevitable. You know, like anything I would put out, you could easily go like, oh, that sounds like a Smashing Pumpkins riff or moment or a song because it's there. Um, it just influences so much of what I do. But there was so much more of that heart in what he was putting out there. Sanctified. Sanctified with a slap bass. Um, kind of Seinfeld. No, I'm just kidding. It is kind of a, you know, that that's, that's one of the more dated uh, sounds on the album. Sanctified is a great song. But that synth slap bass definitely sounds like of the time. It doesn't quite sound like what he would go on and do. But you know what? For for its time and its place, it was exactly um, what it was supposed to be. And so when you go back there, it just takes you back to that sound and that energy. And then something I can never have. I spent so much time on that, uh, the way that song makes me feel. But that's definitely the one. And then when I get to the second half of the album, this is again, I talked about this on um, one of the earlier episodes about how sometimes when you would have a mixtape of a band, you'd spend a lot more time on side A than side B. This is again one of those that I know that first half of the album so well. And the last half, while I know that next song's kind of I want to sin, that's what I get the only time in Ring Finger. I know those songs, but I don't know them as well as the first half because you'd listen that first side and if you'd finish the tape, Sometimes you would have to go and do something else. And I would always start back at the beginning of side A. I would never start at side B. I would start at the beginning. And it just, you know, nine times out of ten, you'd end up listening to side A multiple times before you'd get to side B. But um, songs like That's What I Get wasn't supposed to be on the album. That was, you know, I think at the time he felt like lyrically it didn't fit. So that one ended up on there. Um, And then Ring Finger, like I said, is the one that has the... um, has a lot of the samples built in there, uh, you know, like by Jane's addiction and Prince. Um, Trent Reznor had a lot of musical influences. You know, he talks about seeing um, the Eagles live and that blowing him away and being inspired to make something like Pink Floyd's The Wall. You know, we think of him only as this, you know, this dark, sinister character kind of looking through his gaze. Well, mainly because he takes pictures like that and a lot of the media was like that. But he obviously had so many other aspects of influence and music and styles that were in there and that were inspiring him to create this album. And you really do get to see him finding his voice. And that's why I think Pretty Hate Machine is the foundation before you go on the Nine Inch Nails journey. Um, I realize I've been talking for a while now, so I might want to wrap it up. But there were a couple other things that I wanted to touch on. One was... Um, a funny story down in it when they were releasing that as a single, they shot a music video for it and the director had tied the camera to balloons so that he could get this aerial shot. This is before drones. 
So you could get this aerial shot and, you know, hey, when you're low budget, you can't hire a helicopter. So this is how they're going to do it. Because if you've seen the Down In It video, it's all kind of leading up to this person who's fallen off a building or been pushed off a building. And then you, 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 you know, you zoom in at the end of the video and you see that it's Trent Reznor there laying on the ground, dead, so dark. And it's all this kind of grainy black and white footage. Well, the director was getting those aerial shots spinning above the body on the ground and they have the camera on these balloons and it gets out of their control and it's gone. It's up in the air and it ends up landing 300 miles away on like a farmer's field. And this guy goes and finds the camera. He watches the video footage on there. And what he sees is it looks like this is like a snuff film. This is like footage of a guy getting murdered. So he takes it to the police, they get to the FBI, and they open up an uh, an investigation on this tape that's like filming somebody's murder. And it takes a while for them to finally realize that it was a music video being shot by Trent Reznor for Nine Inch Nails and that it's not anything to worry about. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then another thing that I thought was wild was many years ago, I was somewhere in the Midwest. It might have been when we were filming House Harker or somewhere But I remember being in like a hardware store and there was an AC unit on the ceiling and it was mounted on the ceiling and it said Resner on the side of it and it was mounted and there was these spikes into the the ceiling that were holding it. I took a picture of it and I posted it on my social media, I think on on Instagram and I wrote like, I hope this thing is held up by nine inch nails or I made a terrible joke. It was just me being the total goofball that I am. Would you expect anything less? So I, I made this video, I mean, I made this post, this picture, and it wasn't until recently that I realized or found out that the Reznor name on that AC unit was absolutely the same family as Trent Reznor. His grandfather, great-grandfather, was the founder of this heating and air conditioning service, and that Reznor name is absolutely his family name, and so it's on these these units, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, anyway, so... If you have never spent time with um, Pretty Hate Machine and you've only gone to, you know, look, Downward Spiral is still huge. Broken was really big and really pushed us into that darker area. Broken as the EP brought in the 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 really disturbing film aspects to what he was trying to go for there. And a lot of that dark energy that came came because of the terrible relationship that he had with TBT Records on this album, the record deal that he had. It really started him off on the wrong foot with the music industry and then him feeling like they were suppressing sales of his album and feeling really um, trapped and angry that this really set the stage for Trent Reznor's disdain for MTV, um, all the commercialization, you know, that he would later encourage people to steal his music and never wanted anything to do with any of that stuff. And this all happens with this record company and he gets off of this one and then you know, starts over with Interscope. And then anyway, he had a, a, a lot of challenges over the years with getting out of these awful relationships, uh, record contracts. But, you know, without TVT getting him on that first album, we wouldn't have Pretty Hate Machine and the rest is history. You know, and Trent Reznor has proven to be a, an incredibly gifted artist, writer, composer, um, and has a lot to offer. But that's it. That is that is Pretty Hate Machine. Um, Flood, the famous record producer, was one of the the producers on the album, but he only ended up doing two songs, mainly because 
Trent Reznor had asked him to help produce the album, but right at the same time, he got asked to produce Depeche Mode's Violator, so he was busy doing that while um, Trent's making this album. But he was able to come at the very end and help at least with two of the songs. But there's a bunch of other producers on this album um, outside of Flood. Um, but yeah, Pretty Hate Machine. I'm going to go sit and lean my head against the glass window and, and weep to myself as I say, You make this all go away. Boy, that makes me feel those teenage angst feelings. This has been another episode of Waterproof Records. It's fun when I get a chance to just geek out about music and talk about life and experience with you and share these feelings and memories. Um, Again, don't forget, if you wanted to get a shirt of mine or something, visit my Bonfire store. I think you can go into Google and just type in Bonfire Jacob Gibbons and the store comes up. But if you want, you can go check out my links. And then again... Check out distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Get that 30% off. Get your music out there. I'm working on music right now. I can't wait to bring it out in the world. Um, And last but not least, make sure to tell people about the show. Make sure to spread the word. Give me those comments, that feedback. I can't keep making the show if we don't grow bigger and bigger. And then who knows what we could do? We could, I could set up a residency here in LA where we do a live podcast or one day, one day I could take this show on the road and we could do like a waterproof records tour and I could come to your town and do a live episode and we could do music, whatever. It could be really cool. So anyway, sky's the limit and you're going to help me get there. So I appreciate you. I'm always grateful for you. Thanks for joining me to talk about Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, we'll see you next time on Waterproof Records. Things are going to change. I feel it. That's kind of fun, it was...